Welcome to Know Your True Self, a show dedicated to raising the consciousness of humanity. Today we have as a guest Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Dr. Grayson has an illustrious career, has published more than 100 scholarly articles about near-death experiences in peer-reviewed medical journals and three academic books. His new book, titled After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond, is his first trade book, bringing his scientific research to a popular audience. Let's get started. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today on Know Your True Self. Oh, thank you, James, for having me. I'm glad to be here with you. Before we talk about NDEs, let's go back to the beginning. Who was little Bruce Grayson? What was your life like growing up? What were all the experiences that you had that transformed you into the person that you are today? Well, I was, uh, I was raised in a, in a scientific household. My father was a chemist and his, you know, the world was defined by the periodic table of the elements. And we never had any, any religious or spiritual traditions in my family. We just grew up with the physical world and that was it. And of course, that means when you die, you die. And that was fine with us. That wasn't a problem. So I, I went through college and medical school with that mindset that the physical world is all there is. And this physical life is all there was. And that didn't seem depressing at all to me. That's just the way life was. So what goes on in the household of a chemist? What type of experiments happens? How do you express yourself through the periodic table? What are the types of activities that you're doing as a family? Well, my father was a, a chemist who worked with Teflon in the early days after it was first discovered. And he set up a lab in our basement and would constantly be experimenting down there. And I'd go down there as a little kid and just watch him and learn from him how to use the different tools. And he was constantly making new inventions with his Teflon. Teflon coated all my mother's kitchen gadgets before those were commercially available. They weren't as good as the ones that are available now. They constantly flaked off into the food. <laughs> he tried making a shaving stick uh, with Teflon in it, Teflon mixed with talc. And he tried making uh, Teflon inserts for our shoes so we wouldn't get blisters. And the problem with, with Teflon is that so it doesn't react with anything. So it's very slippery, which makes it great for, you know, spatulas and frying pans, but not great for shoes where you're trying to walk and you're sliding all over the place. <laughs> Grew up with, with different experiments going on in the household. And he approached all of life that way. If there was a question, you didn't look to philosophy to, to answer. You looked, collected data and answered it that way. Right. So growing up in this environment, where did you want to take your own career when you were younger? Was there something that was calling to you? Or did you want to follow in his footsteps? I know, obviously, you went to the field of psychology and what brought you into that dimension? Right. Well, I like the scientific mindset where you look for answers in the data, but I wasn't particularly drawn to chemistry, uh, probably because my father kept pushing it on me. And when I went through college, I had in mind maybe being a doctor because I like working with people. In medical school, I started gravitating more and more towards uh, psychiatry because that seemed to be where the most unanswered questions were. Brain and mind seemed just more interesting than the kidneys to me. So I kept moving towards that direction. And of course, thought of it in terms of just the brain is all there is and the mind is what the brain does. There's nothing beyond that. Then eventually you became a psychiatrist and right. you're right. practicing and then something happens and... It's a, a beautiful experience that you have, probably a frightening experience and an awakening yes. experience. And all of a sudden it's given you 
a whole new hobby in life. So yeah. Yeah. in a nutshell, like what was that like? What happened? <laughs> well, it was actually terrifying. Uh, it was actually in my first few weeks of being a, a psychiatric intern. And I was called to see a patient in the emergency room who was unconscious. She had overdosed. And, but her roommate had brought her in and was waiting to speak to me in another room. So I talked to the roommate for about 15, 20 minutes and then went back to see the patient. She was still unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. And when I saw her the next day, I started to introduce myself and she said, I, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. And that kind of puzzled me because I, I was pretty sure she was unconscious. So I said that to her. I said, you know, I, I thought you were out cold when I saw you last night. And she said, uh, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Ooh. And that, yeah, ooh, <laughs> uh, sent chills up my spine. I didn't know what she was talking about. The only way that could have happened is if she had left her body and followed me down the hall. And that was clearly ridiculous. You are your body. How can you leave it? So I, I didn't know how to deal with that, but I, I was there to help her, not to help my own confusion. Right. So I kind of pushed those feelings away and just talked with her about why she took the overdose, what was going on in her life and so forth. And as I thought about it in the next few weeks, I couldn't make any sense of it at all. So I kind of pushed it out of my mind, said, you know, I'll deal with that later. Whenever I tried to deal with it, it was, it was very unnerving. And it was about uh, four or five years later that Raymond Moody joined me at the University of Virginia. And he had published a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the name near-death experience and described for them what they were. And that was the first intimation I had that these are not just, you know, crazy things that patients talking about. These are common things that happen to people all over the world and still didn't make any sense to me scientifically. So I thought, well, scientists' job is to understand things. So I need to learn about these. So I started collecting cases. Here I am half a century later, still trying to figure out what's going on there. Yeah. Right. Uh, amazing. And on that journey, you know, because I know in your book, you talk about anecdote and how a lot of these stories are perceived by other people as, oh, it's a hallucination. It's right. something they're, they don't know how to cope with the experience they had. So they're making up this story possibly. And here you are rooted in science, you know, the absolutes in the world, the quantitative vocabulary that can define why things are happening. And as you start to move into exploring near-death experiences. How is that making you feel from a comfort level? I mean, you're trying to uncover the truth behind something that's unknown, so I can understand right. that. But at what point are you feeling almost disenfranchised from the academic community in medicine? When I started doing the research, I fully expected there'd be a nice, simple physiological uh, explanation in the brain that could explain these. And the more I learned about them over the years, and it did take many, many years, I started realizing there's got to be more than just the physical brain to, to explain this. And that was kind of disturbing in a way because it upset my concept of, of who we are in the world and what the world is made of. On the other hand, my father had drilled in me that, you know, science is a work in progress and we never have all the answers. We just get closer and closer to the truth and never quite reach it. And all you can do is rule out competing hypotheses. You can never come up with a final answer. So in a way, it was fine with me that we didn't have an answer, that my physiological mindset was not producing the results I wanted, but that's okay. I mean, that's, we don't understand everything. You know, our, our brains are too small to understand them. So let's just keep looking. Right, right. And then eventually after studying many, many, many 
near-death experiences and interviewing people, you eventually came up with a scale, right? And a scale right. to help build some quantifiable data around these experiences. What was that like? And what is inside of that scale? Well, in, in the first few years of near-death research, there were, I would say, less than a dozen people in the world who were studying this phenomenon. We've never heard about them, no. And we're each working in isolation at our various universities in different, different countries. And we each had different ideas about what was important about near-death experiences. So we were, of course, asking different questions of our patients and our contacts. And some people who were interested in emotions looked at the feeling of peace and well-being. Others who were interested in how the brain functions would look at your thought processes during the NDE. And others who were coming at it from a religious perspective might look at claims to encounter a deity in the near-death experience. So we weren't sure that we were all asking about the same experience because we were asking different questions. So I developed a scale so we'd all be on the same page and asking the same questions and getting the same information. And it was a long process of collecting all the things that had been written in the literature about what happens in a near-death experience and finding the most common things that were reported. And I found 80 different things that were reported as part of a near-death experience. And I listed these things for a group of near-death experiencers and asked them, which are the really important ones? Mm -hmm. And they whittled the list down. And then I took that list back to the scientists and said, which of these makes the most sense to you? And they whittled it down further. And they went back to the experiencers and said, okay, which one of these is a really important one? I went back and forth until I got it down to uh, 16 questions, which seemed to be agreed upon by the experiencers and the researchers. And that composed the, the near-death experience scale. Now that was 40 years ago. And if I were doing it now, I might have put some different things in. For example, at the time, we were relying on people coming forward to us with their stories. So we were getting a, a kind of a biased view of what was happening out there. An example of that is no one told us about a, a frightening or a, a hellish experience. Right. So we didn't know those existed. So that didn't become part of the scale. And now that we've been interviewing many more people who don't come to us, but we go to them in the hospital, we're hearing there are some unpleasant experiences. So I would, if I were doing it now, I would include unpleasant experiences as part of the scale. Now, you mentioned that there was only a handful of researchers at the beginning of this that were even right. studying right. NDEs, but a lot of people actually do have NDEs that go oh, unreported. Yes. So what did you learn just about the amount of people that are having them as you got into the research? Well, it's hard to get good data because people aren't always willing to talk about their experience. And in fact, they're even less willing to talk about the unpleasant ones. So we don't really know how many of those there are. But most people who have tried to done population studies have sent, said that about 5% of the general population has had a near-death experience. That's one out of every 20 people. That's a lot of people. So they're very common. Um, also, as a psychiatrist, I was looking at the interaction of mental illness and near-death experiences because a lot of people say, oh, this is just a sign of, you know, you're crazy. You're right. just making things up. You're imagining it. So I've compared near-death experiences and types of mental illness, delusions, hallucinations, and they are very, very different in a lot of ways. And we looked at the incidence of near-death experiences among psychiatric patients. It's the same as it is among people who are not patients. We've also looked at the incidence of mental illness among near-death experiencers. It's the same as it is among people who aren't near-death experiencers. So there doesn't seem to be any connection between mental illness 
and the near-death experience. Wow. I mean, it's, it's incredible that it's such a common phenomenon. Now, inside of that phenomenon and the scale, which I love, because the scale in itself gives you a peek into all of the elements that make up the experience, those common themes that you right, have. And right. I think one theme that really takes me away is experiencing beyond the senses. Sometimes we feel like we're interacting with the physical world, but we're not, we're on delay, right? We're getting information that's going into our brain and it's creating a picture in consciousness, right? So that's right. That's right. there's this great illusion of the human experience. Now, once those senses are stripped away, what are people talking about? Like, what are they experiencing? Because I know it's even hard for them to come to terms with it, right? It is, it is. You know, when you, when you, you know, say to it, and you have to experience your, tell me what happened. They usually start by saying, well, I, I can't, I can't put it into words. There are just no words to describe this. So we researchers say, great, tell me about it. You know, we know we're making them distort the experience by, by telling us about it. And they often manage to do that by resorting to, to metaphors. You know, it was like this. And the metaphors they come up with are culturally associated or religiously associated. So we know we're kind of getting a, a distorted picture of that. An example is many people talk about going through a long, dark, enclosed space to get from this physical world to the other realm. And people in Western cultures will often say, I went through a tunnel. And people who live in third world countries don't use that word because they don't have a lot of tunnels in their country. So they may say, I went into a cave mm. or I fell into a well or something like that. I spoke to one person who was a truck driver who said, I got sucked into this tailpipe. <laughs> his metaphor for the structure he went through. Right. And another good example is about the, the so-called being of light. Many people all around the world, and even going back through, through history, uh, will talk about encountering this warm, loving light that seems to be a being, not just uh, impersonal physical light. And people here in the West or in Judeo-Christian cultures will say it's God. And people in other cultures that don't have a monolithic God won't use that word. They may call it something else, or they may just call it a being of light. And even people here will say, I'm going to call it God so you know what I'm talking about. But this isn't the God I was taught about in church. Mm. It's totally different from that. It's much bigger than that. So that experience of becoming part of oneness or universal consciousness or reconnecting with God, however anyone wants to try to define it, there might be some expectations that someone has about religious belief systems or what's going to happen and right. what type of experiences do or have people with NDEs taken away from meeting their maker? Have their religious belief systems become stronger? Have they become more open? How has it impacted them? There are occasional people who after a near death experience become more dedicated to their religion of origin. The vast majority do not. They come away from the experience saying that all religions are basically the same. They're all man-made attempts to get at this div divinity, which is out there independent of all our religions. And they say that they feel equally at home in any house of worship of any denomination, or even being out in nature. They can still feel the divine out there. And they tend to look at religions as being, well, I can take it or leave it. It's not, nothing to do with God, really. It's just, you know, a way we try to talk about it. 
they may still love the rituals and the music and the community in a, in a church, but they don't see it as furthering their connection to the divine that's independent of the religion. So that expression of oneness, of yeah. one connected energy field, it's something we talk a lot about in the field of consciousness, but right. the feeling of that connectedness, it must be an awakening experience for them. I mean, when, when they have that experience and they come back to earth, how does that transform even how they cope with this reality? It can be a problem for a lot of people when you're in that experience. It's very, it's a sense of being liberated. You know, the things that define you, your age, your gender, your ethnicity, they're all gone in the near-death experience. And yet you feel better than ever. So you realize, well, I don't need that identity. I don't need my profession. I don't need my gender to know who I am. I'm something independent of that. And that's tremendously liberating. But it can also be a problem when you come back here into this physical body with a certain age and a certain gender and a certain race and you're stuck with this. And what do you do with that? Because the things that defined you before no longer seem important to you and yet they're still there. So um, some people have a great deal of difficulty fitting back into the quote, normal everyday world. It begs the question is what if we could release those labels we put on ourselves, those walls right. we put around on ourselves, why we're here on earth and can students of near-death experiences, those that have have been through them become teachers for the rest of the population because they must right. have a lot that they can bestow on us in terms of what is this reality and trying to make sense of it. Yeah, even though they come back into this individual body, they still feel that connection to the divine that permeates everything. And that makes them feel more compassionate towards other people because they can sense the divine in other people as well, which makes it very hard to be violent towards other people or to be hateful towards other people. Now, of course, they're human beings, so they still have the same emotions, but they also are aware of the fact that they're the same as everybody else. And this comes to them often in the life review. You know, many people talk about reliving their lives in a near-death experience, and it's quite astounding because they seem to relive their entire lives in, a, in an experience that takes often a, a second or a few seconds. Wow. But sometimes, they experience their, these events in their lives, not only through their own perspectives, but through the eyes of other people as well. Let me give you an example of that. Tom was about 33 when he had his near-death experience. He was working under his truck in his driveway and it fell and, and crushed his chest. And he had a, a very elaborate near-death experience, which lots of parts of it, but one of them was a life review. And he recalled, for example, being a teenager and driving his hot rod truck down the street and a drunk man ran out in front of his truck and almost hit him. So Tom got furious, he jammed on the brakes. Uh, it was a hot day, he had the window open, so he yelled at the man out the window. And the man being quite intoxicated, reached his hand in and slapped Tom across the face. So that was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he got out of the truck and started beating the man up. And he left him a bloody mess on the median strip and then calmly got in his truck and drove away. Well, when he had his near-death experience, in the life review, he relived this through his own eyes, feeling the adrenaline rush and the rage, and also through the eyes of the man he beat up, feeling the humiliation of being beaten by a teenager, feeling his nose getting bloody, uh, feeling his, his teeth going through his lower lip, and feeling the 32 blows of Tom's fist on his 
Oof. face. Now, Tom couldn't Oof. have told you there were 32, but he relifted it through that man's eyes and knew it. Wow. And he came back then from his near-death experience realizing, I'm the same as this guy. I, my consciousness was in him as well as in me. We're all the same. And that leads people to basically the golden rule, which is part of every religion we have on this planet. You know, to do unto others as you have them do unto you. Because when you do, when you hurt someone else, you realize you're also hurting yourself. And they experience that in the near-death experience and bring it back with them. Because they do feel sad that they've hurt other people. They feel regretful for things they've done in their past. What they don't feel is judged by anybody other than themselves. Right. They don't have a sense of a deity or anything else judging them, but it's them feeling bad themselves that they've done something. And they often see that as a wake-up call and try to do better now. Now, there's a lot of stories, as you talked about earlier, about the positive experiences, the bright light, the warmth, the right. oneness, vivid colors beyond the imagination. But there are people that do have dark dark, dark. Yes. Yes. NDEs. I remember the one in your book about the person falling through the well and just praying, please help, help me, God, help me, God. And this was someone that had no spiritual background, was begging for forgiveness. Right. And what else is happening in the negative ones? Do we have a lot of insight about them? Because it's so hard for people to talk about those, we don't know exactly how many they are. Most people who've looked at this think that it's between one and 5% of near-death experiences. And there are a very small number that have prototypical hellish imagery with, with demons and hellfire and brimstone. But that's a very tiny minority. And I've only heard that from people who were raised in a religion that preached that. Some um, Southern Baptists, some, some Roman Catholics. There's a larger group that are a sense of being in a black void for eternity with no sound, no sight, nothing. Just your consciousness with nothing else. And that, for most Westerners, is a terrifying experience. It's a sense of being alone. Now, I've also talked to some people who were Hindus and raised in um, Hindu cultures, where they experienced that black void as being nirvana. That was just blissful nothingness. Wow. Wow. But by far, most of the near-death experiences that are unpleasant sound just like the pleasant ones, but they're experienced in a frightening way. So people may feel ripped out of their bodies and hurtled down a tunnel and confronted by this blinding light, and they're terrified of it. At some point, they're fighting against it, trying to get back into the body, trying to end the experience. And at some point, a lot of them get exhausted and surrender to the experience. And as soon as they surrender, it becomes a blissful experience for them. So what was terrifying was not the experience itself, but their resistance to it. Now, we don't know a whole lot about these experiences because we have very few of them. People aren't willing to talk about them a whole lot. So there hasn't been a lot of research done on them. I would say that anecdotally, it seems to me that a lot of these people who have the unpleasant experiences are rather uh, obsessional people who need to be in control. And they find the experience of an NDE being out of control very terrifying for them. And when they give up trying to be in control and relax into it and surrender, it becomes blissful for them. So given everything that you've learned about NDEs, how do you translate those learnings from those experiences to how we can live more peacefully in a world that is seemingly chaotic and unpredictable? Yeah, one thing most near-death experiences bring back is a sense that 
the universe is a friendly place. And that if we just stop fighting against what's happening and just accept the life for what it is, it's a wonderful experience. And even death, which we're often very afraid of, is a pleasant experience for them. The process of dying may have some pain involved depending on how you're dying. But once you get through that initial part and get separation from the physical body, there's no more pain. You're in a blissful situation where there's peace and sense of well-being. And that's something people bring back with them and they approach life the same way. When you're not afraid of dying, you're also not afraid of living, of taking chances, of, of jumping in with both feet, because what's the worst that happens? You die, which is great. So they tend to enjoy life a lot more. They tend to live in the present, not dwell on problems in the past or worry about what's happening in the future. And that's something we can all benefit from, from learning how to live more in the present and stop worrying so much about things we don't have control over and they're gonna end up okay in the end after all. So how has all of this changed the belief system or evolved the belief system from little Bruce that grew up in the world of the periodic table after half a century of studying near-death experiences? And how do you perceive the world around us now? How has that changed? Well, you know, as a scientist, I can't say I have the answers, but I have a sense that this physical world is not the whole story. That there's a large part of us that's not tied to the physical body. I've seen enough people who have near-death experiences and have very vivid experiences while their bodies are unconscious. And we know that they are unconscious. They're either totally anesthetized or there's their brain damage or something like that, hearts have stopped. And yet they report the most vivid experiences they've ever had. And there are other things besides near-death experiences that point to this, that the, the mind can function without the physical body. And if that's true while you're alive, can it also be true after you've died? And we have lots of evidence from near-death experiences and other lines of research that we do persist in consciousness after death. I don't know what it's like after you die. As I said, most people say there aren't any words to describe it, so I don't think we can understand it. The way people describe the near-death experience is in metaphor. So I don't take literally what they say about the afterlife realm. But there are some things that I do take from it. And one is the sense that whatever it is, it's pleasant. The other thing they say is that a lot of the things that we consider an integral part of our physical world don't exist over there. Our usual sense of space, of where we stop and where we start, and our sense of time is limited to this world. It doesn't exist over there. And some say it's like you're living in past, present, and future all at the same time. But mostly they say the concept of time never comes up over there. It's just it's something that we have in this physical world that we've put on our existence. And it's not true over there. In many ways, death feels like one of the greatest gifts of life. Well, I think it is. I think it is. You know, you talked before about the sense of cosmic unity of being one with everything, of sort of merging with the universal consciousness or the Godhead. And people describe that, but they also describe maintaining a sense of themselves in that. And that sounds like a paradox. How can you be a distinct individual and yet still part of this universal consciousness? And when I ask near-death experiences about this, they say, well, it sounds like a paradox when you're here in the physical world, in your physical brain. But it's not a paradox over there. It's perfectly fine over there. <laughs> right. It's just the way things are. 
And some will use the analogy of a wave in the ocean, that a wave is the same stuff as the rest of the ocean is, but at least for the time being, it's got a separate structure. And that's the individual, which will eventually melt back into the entire ocean. But for a while, it's still an individual thing. Yeah, it's amazing to think that we're such unique expressions of consciousness and this body, everything that we identify with is really just a vessel and whatever is going on in the invisible nature of humanity is the driving force behind all. I mean, it is is what's so remarkable about this world and so beautifully mystifying about consciousness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what do you think is next in the field of consciousness and studying consciousness in the world of NDEs or beyond? Where is research starting to go now? It's broadening a great deal. You know, I said before that when we started out in the late 70s and early 80s, there were only a handful of researchers. And now there are hundreds of them all over the world with a very varied background. There are some who are neurophysiologists, neurochemists who are approaching things from that perspective of what's going on in the brain when you have these experiences. There are others who are sociologists looking at how different cultures will react to a near-death experience. And they're producing a lot of research that was certainly beyond my expertise as a psychiatrist to look at. I should also say that those people who are neuroscientists looking at NDEs are not necessarily reducing it to what's going on in the brain. But clearly, something has to be going on to let you leave the body, so to speak. So, you know, we are tied to our brains while we're here in the body. There's no question about that, that everything you perceive is filtered through the brain. But if you're going to leave your body, as people say they do during a near-death experience, that means something must happen in the brain to allow that to happen. I think we become so infatuated with the brain and consciousness is omnipresent and the brain is a vessel for consciousness but there's so many clues we're still unlocking of how consciousness even works through our brain yeah because when we die our brain is there and if you're in a near-death experience your consciousness which has to be energy because something's powering this supercomputer in our head is somewhere else and then it comes back which is unbelievably mind-blowing. <laughs> right, right. This is not a new idea by any means. Uh, you know, Hippocrates 2,000 years ago said that the brain is the, is the messenger or the interpreter of the mind. And different people throughout history have used different models based on their current technology to describe it. You know, in the 19th century, they were talking about a steam engine model and using reducing valves as a model. And then in the 20th century, they started talking about a receiver or a transmitter, like a radio transmitter, you have in a radio or television set, you have lots of channels out there broadcasting. If you tried to look at them all at the same time, you wouldn't understand any of it. So the TV set filters out all but one and just lets that one in. And the idea is that the brain is kind of like that. It takes all these thoughts out there about deities, about deceased loved ones, and filters all the irrelevant quote stuff out. It just lets in the stuff that's important for surviving in the physical world. How do you find food, shelter, a mate, and so forth? Yeah, it, you reminded me of one of my favorite quotes, and I can't remember who said it, but I think it's um, looking for consciousness in the brain is like looking for the announcer in the radio, um, yeah, which exactly. I, I thought was always fun. <laughs> um, any other parting thoughts, any other wisdom you want to share about consciousness or your own experiences? 
Well, I think what this research has done for me has made me a lot more comfortable with the unknown. The fact that we're not going to have all the answers, but if you ask most near-death experiencers, what does this mean to you that you had this experience? They say, well, we come back with the knowledge, not just the idea, the knowledge that we are all one and that the way to treat other people is with love and compassion. And I have yet to find a near-death experiencer who didn't agree with that. And that's, that's quite a, a profound testimony. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Bruce Grayson. You've been such an amazing guest, so insightful, and I hope our audience has taken a lot of key learnings out of this and can live as one. Thanks again. Thank you, James. Thank you so much for joining in. Always remember you have a choice. Take an active role in your own evolution. Know your true self. Thank you.